man. Amen. This is indeed the day the Lord has made. We want to be determined to have the will. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. That's something unique to a Christian, you know, that no matter what's going on in life, what kind of sorrows you have in life, you can still rejoice. You notice how many paradoxical statements you find in the Bible that Paul or Jesus says that they are sorrowful and yet still rejoicing. That's not some kind of spiritual schizophrenia. That is what it means to be a Christian. Fallen world and a fallen body with all kinds of faults and all kinds of temptations coming to you. And yet knowing the Lord Jesus Christ yourself, having him hidden in your heart and giving you spiritual life, even when everything else around you feels like death and you are able to rejoice. You're able to rejoice even in the midst of sorrow. Friends, understand that that paradox, rejoicing in sorrow. We do not rejoice as opposed to sorrowing. We want to be a church where you can feel okay to be sad, where you can feel okay to mourn and to weep over deaths, over miscarriages, over relationships that are broken. We have a lot of sorrow in our congregation, and that's okay. And yet we don't want you to leave without rejoicing in the Lord. That's why we don't try to fill our services with fluff. That's why we don't just have all kind of upbeat tempo songs. That's why we can talk about sorrowing and weeping in the songs that we sing. And yet still say, as we will sing later on, that it is well with my soul. We can say that because of who Jesus is and what he's done. As we continue our study through the book of Matthew, we want to continue looking at Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, you turn with me to Matthew Chapter 26, this morning will be in verses 36 through 46. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 832. And if you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily read and understand, then please take that Bible home with you as our gift to you. We want nothing more than for you to have your own copy of God's word. We've been going through a kind of multi-year study through the book of Matthew. Basically, we think that the Bible is enough to sustain and to strengthen us. And so we basically take a book of the Bible here at Temple Hills Baptist Church. We open it up, we read it, we explain it, and we apply it. And we generally do, do that book by book until we're finished the book. We've taken a few breaks through Matthew, but we are nearing the end of this book as we near the end of Jesus' life. It's the final days of Jesus' life in the book of Matthew. The final hours when we pick up our Passage this morning in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. We read, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch, watch and pray. You may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. Leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, I think it's easy for us to read this passage and to pull from it the broad but absolutely true principle 
that when we are in trouble, when we are in despair, we should pray. I mean, that just kind of jumps out as immediately evident from this passage. Jesus prayed three times when he was in trouble. And so we should pray when we are in trouble. We should. This passage does teach that. But more than about a principle, this passage teaches us about a person. Jesus Christ. You know, that's who the entire Bible is all about. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And so while the acronym for the Bible that people sometimes use is cute, you know, the Bible is B-I-B-L-E, it's the basic instructions before leaving earth. That's cute, but the way it's sometimes stated can make it seem like it's, the Bible is more about a set of principles to live by than about a person to follow, to know. Friends, that is not the best view of the Bible. Yes, there are commands to follow, but those commands come from a personal God who reveals himself through his son. And we don't grow as we just coldly follow the commands of the Bible or coldly try to pull out these principles and live a good life by them. No, we grow as we know him better. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18 says that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So quite frankly, we need to look at Jesus. And as we've noted before, the gospels help us to do that more intentionally. They are fundamentally about him. They put the focus specifically on Jesus Christ. And in this passage in particular, this morning, we get a kind of raw, unhindered access to Jesus. So as we did last week, we want to stare at Jesus in this passage and learn about and from him. What does this passage teach us about Jesus Christ? Well, here's what I think the main idea of this passage is. The main idea of Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Even in deep distress... Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. One of resisting temptation, depending upon God and submitting to his will. Even in deep distress, Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. One of resisting temptation, submitting to God and depending upon him. If you didn't get all that, I think it's printed in the bulletin. As we walk through these verses together, we'll hang our thoughts around three realities about Jesus we see in this text. So three points. Number one, Jesus is deeply human. Jesus is deeply human. Number two, Jesus is absolutely divine. Jesus is absolutely divine. And three, Jesus is incredibly compassionate. Jesus is com com incredibly compassionate. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of see those three points uh, scattered throughout these few verses this morning. We'll start off just looking at how Jesus is, is deeply human. And now perhaps that doesn't stand out to you as very significant. I mean, it's not often that we speak of people and marvel at their humanness. Although... Being a human is something to marvel at. People are God's special creation made in his image for his glory. But in Jesus, we see one who was not created, but always was and is and evermore shall be. He is the eternal God who became human, who took on flesh. He is God, the son incarnate. But because Jesus is, is God in human form, sometimes it's hard for us to see and to appreciate his humanity and why that's so important for us. Amen. Here in this portion of scripture, Matthew helps us. Uh, first, we, we get a glimpse of the importance of Jesus's humanity just in the setting of this passage. Verse 36 tells us that Jesus gathered his disciples and went to a place called Gethsemane. It, it means 
oil press. It was located on the Mount of Olives that Jesus was at in a previous passage. He left the Lord's Supper and went to the Mount of Olives. John's gospel says it's a place where Jesus and his disciples would often meet, which is why Judas would soon be able to lead Jesus' arresters there. He knew the common place to find him. But John's gospel also designates Gethsemane as a garden. And given the details of what's to happen here in the garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus experiences a severe test of faith, our minds constantly or instantly dart back to another garden where another human was tested. The first human, Adam, who was tested in the Garden of Eden and failed the test. But here's another Adam, a true and better Adam, another human representative in the garden. How will he hold up under severe trials and testing? Will he live under God's rule as humans were intended to live? Or will he rebel against God's rule as the first human did? And all subsequent humans have. Don't miss the link between the two gardens and between the two humans. The first human, Adam, and this human, Jesus Christ. The setting in and of itself sets off the significance of Jesus' humanity. But we also see the deep humanity of Jesus in this passage from his emotions. Jesus is in agony, which is something quite strange to us, isn't it? I mean, because up to this point, we've noted Jesus predict his death several times and march towards it with a kind of calm confidence and not fearful or fretting at all. And all of it might have begun to stir up in us sentiments that Jesus is something of a subhuman. Just kind of a religious robot auto program to complete this mission from God without any kind of deviations. Maybe you think that Jesus, if he truly was a human, was somebody you could never get with, could never hang with. He was the most stoic person who ever lived, unmoved by anything, unmoved by death even. But here we start to see more of the inner life of the Lord. We, we learn that Jesus gathers his disciples together to go to Gethsemane, the, the place of testing, to pray. And specifically, he singles out the inner core of his disciples in verse 37. The inner three, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, whom we learned earlier in this book, are James and John. He gathers them together to go along with him in this garden experience. At his most Intense time of trial and wrestling, Jesus wanted his close friends around him, helping him, caring for him. How human. But, but, but more, look at the end of verse 37. With death so very near in just hours, Jesus experiences what we would expect any man to feel. Sorrow. Grief. Trouble. I mean, he is a man. We've seen that all throughout Matthew. Jesus eats and sleeps just like every other man. And here Jesus feels just like every other man. And unlike many other men, Jesus doesn't hide his feelings. He shares them with his friends. Verse 37, he began to be, to feel sorrowful and troubled. Verse 38, then he said to them, to Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus shares what's on his heart with his disciples. He doesn't think that sharing his weakness negatively affects the discipling relationship. And negatively diminishes the friendship. He thinks it's actually part and parcel of it. We were made for community. And Jesus models here even the depth of what genuine relationships should look like. Sharing the hardships of life. Sharing your agony with others. So, so friends, if you've 
grown accustomed to bottling up your feelings inside. Just know that quite literally, that is not the godly thing to do. Jesus Christ didn't do that. And neither should you. Well, who can I share with, you might ask? I can't trust anybody. Well, join the club. Jesus shared his emotions, as we'll see in this passage and the next, with people who ultimately let him down. It happens. People are imperfect. But that doesn't give you or I the warrant to walk around weighed down, unwilling to share our burdens. That's not the way that God made us. So while that old popular song sounds spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I've seen but Jesus. Please don't use that as a mantra by which you live unwilling to be vulnerable. Other people knew the trouble that Jesus had seen because Jesus shared it with them. Since that's one of the primary reasons God has put you in a local church. That's one of the primary reasons God has put you in this local church to share your burdens and your sorrows with other Christians. I wonder what's on your heart this morning that you might need to unload to another brother or sister. Don't walk away from here weighed down. Take use of the gift of God's people to share your burdens and your sorrows. Jesus is sorrowful and lets the disciples know about it. But the question we might ask is, what's changed? Why is Jesus now so sorrowful, sorrowful and his sorrow so deep that it, it was almost killing him? It felt like he was going to die because of the sorrow. Have you, have you ever felt that kind of grief? Right, where, where it feels like death has actually happened because the sorrow, the sadness, the weightiness of the grief is so high? Jesus is feeling that. But why? Is it that death is now ultimately frightening him? Did Jesus suddenly become a coward? Well, no. It wasn't the mere prospect of death that grieved Jesus. Although the reality of a gruesome death by means of a crucifixion is not desired by any sane man. I mean, that certainly troubled Jesus some. He is a man. He is no masochist who takes pleasure in pain. No, he shudders as any human would in the face of crucifixion, but far more than the mere physical pain and suffering. Horrible as that was, Jesus was grieved by the separation from God that he would experience. Jesus was grieved by the judgment from God's hand that he would endure. It all brings Jesus intense emotional turmoil. His words in verse 38 closely mirror the words Chris read for us earlier in Psalm 42. There the psalmist said that his soul was cast down and in turmoil within him. Here is the one who fulfills the Psalms, the true sufferer. On his way to physical suffering, here experiencing emotional suffering. The, the Bible has a category for that, you know. There is a such thing as emotional suffering that we need to realize. Jesus makes us know how he feels. I am sorrowful and deeply troubled, he says. My soul is with, it's in turmoil within me. Hear the man Jesus expressing his deep humanity to his disciples. Hear the man Jesus expressing his deep humanity to God. We get a deeper picture of the deep humanity of Jesus through the words that Jesus prayed to God. And here it is appropriate to, to revisit what we touched on earlier, that it is altogether right and necessary that when we are disquieted and troubled, yes, we can invite friends to share with us in the pain. We must also go to the Lord in prayer. The words of the hymn are true. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we, we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in, in prayer. Jesus prays to God. Three times in verses 39 and 42 and 44 respectively. 
But, but had the intended focus of this passage only have been on the need to pray when you are troubled, then we might have only gotten a kind of narrative overview. We might have only gotten a sentence that says something like, now, now Jesus was greatly troubled, and so he prayed before moving on to another scene. But instead, notice that Matthew doesn't just tell us that Jesus prayed. Matthew tells us what Jesus prayed. You know, we, we need to pay attention to things like that when we read the Bible. We need to ask, why is the actual prayer recorded? Well, it's because the author wants us to learn not simply from the act of praying, but from the actual content of the prayer. It is why we read the content of the Lord's Prayer that Warner prayed for us earlier in Matthew 6. It's, where, it's why we read the, the content of the Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17. It's why we read the content of Paul's prayers in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. See how saints of old prayed and be instructed by them. See here how the Savior of the world prayed and be instructed by it. What incredible access the Bible gives us to Jesus the Christ. We hear the Savior's very words here. Jesus, as it were, flings open the door to his prayer closet and invites all the world to come listen in. Verse 39 tells us that Jesus went a short distance from the disciples and fell on his face. His body laid prostrate and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here we see in greater focus, or, or rather we hear with greater clarity from the lips of Jesus himself what caused him so much agony. We don't need to surmise or, or guess. Jesus tells us what's causing him so much pain. He did not want to drink the cup from the Father. What is this cup? Well, it's not just death. I mean, if Jesus was, was this trembling and fearful before death, it would be a very human thing, but it would also make him weaker than many other humans who face death and face their dying days with boldness. Right? History books are filled with philosophers and martyrs who, who go to death unashamed and unworried about anything. Is Jesus less than them? Surely not. Uh, surely not. No, no, no. This cup was not simply death. This cup was the cup of God's wrath. It, it finds its basis in many of the writings of the Old Testament. And just listen to several of the passages from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. God says, wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Or think about the, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Or think about the psalmist in Psalm 75 verses 7 through 8. Who says it is God who executes judgment. Putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. With foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Dregs is like the grounds, the little stuff at the bottom of the cup. Here is the man, Jesus, about to take on and bear the sins of many men and women as our substitute. The sins that separate us from God and cause God to pour out the cup of his wrath on us. Well, as that time draws near to, to face that God, Jesus is not cool and calm and collected. Jesus is a mess. It causes Jesus great grief. It causes Jesus intense agony and internal torment. 
Friends, see Jesus in agony. Hear him crying out and learn from Jesus here how humans should feel with the certain future of facing a furious God. This is how humans should feel with the certain future of facing a furious God. It should cause us to tremble, to become undone. Oh, but how does that differ from our attitudes? Isn't it striking how casually we treat sin? How lightly we think of God? And friends, perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you claim to be a Christian, but deep inside you, you know that you are not. You just go on sinning and sinning and sinning, living for today with no thought of tomorrow. I mean, you keep hearing about how God hates sin. You keep hearing about how God will one day judge sin. But it kind of washes over you as something that's being blown out of proportion. To you, perhaps future pronouncements of God's judgment are more like meteorologists forecasts. You've seen them before, predicts with great certainty and with all kinds of warning, massive snowstorms that's going to cause everything to shut down. And then you wake up in the morning and there's only a light dusting on the ground. Maybe that's how judgment from God is to you. Great fiery promises of judgment and judgment day. But really, at worst, all that will really happen is a kind of light slap on the wrist. And so you keep on sinning unrepentantly because your friends think it's cool, because society says it's okay, because it'll get you likes, it'll get you some acclaim, it'll get you some, some status. But friends, as you continue living that way, just know what you're doing. By every single sinful act, what you are doing is pouring constantly into this deep cup of God's wrath that he, the Bible says, is storing up for you and will one day pour out on you for every single sin that you've ever done against a good and a holy God. He will not miss any of them. He is recording, even the Bible says earlier in Matthew, any idle word that you say. I'm just joking. It doesn't matter to God. The cup is being filled up and we're playing games. When God is saying that there's a cup that's coming that will be poured out for you, it will be horrible. Friends, do not take my word for it. I'm not a reliable enough witness. Take Jesus's word for it. Here is Jesus crying out in the garden, pretty much saying, I'll take crucifixion any day over facing the cup of God's wrath. Which is why he asked, he pleads, if it be possible, let this cup pass. Let this cup pass away from me. He does not want God's judgment to fall on him. That that verb used there to, to pass, let the cup pass. Is the same verb used back in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23, where we read that the Lord would pass over the doors of the Israelites and not allow the destroyer to enter their houses and to strike the firstborn. Here, Jesus is pleading, God, do it again. Pass over me with judgment. Don't strike me down. Friends, here are the real 100% human longings of the Son of God incarnate. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And D.A. Carson notes that in, in a real sense, all things are possible with God. Yet in another sense, some things are impossible. I mean, for instance, there are certain things that are possible as it relates to God's power that are otherwise impossible as it relates to God's plan. I mean, God has the power to have made a world where the sacrifice of his son is not needed. God has the power, even at this very moment, to spare Jesus. But just because God has the power to do so, he will not do so because it is outside of his plan, his purpose, 
which he has revealed progressively through scripture, which cannot be broken because God cannot lie. And so it would be impossible for God to go against his own purposes. Yes, all things are possible as it relates to his power, yet some things are impossible because they go against his plan. Jesus simply pleads as any man would or should faced with the horrible fate of meeting an angry God. You, you don't hear that kind of language anymore, right? God is like a fluffy grandpa, more like a divine Santa Claus that, you know, don't really care what you've done until the end of the year. And then he might show some mercy and some compassion to you. Descriptions and characteristics of God as angry make us come across as angry, right? Yes, the Lord is love, but you got to tell the whole story, right? He is both 100% love, that's who he is, and yet he is an angry, just God against those who rebel against him. And still good. Amen. And still good. Jesus desires to be saved from this angry God. He does not want to go through this. He wants, if at all possible, to avoid the cross. He desires to be spared, but notice Jesus's greater desire to do the father's will. Nevertheless, he prays at the end of verse 39, thank the Lord for the neverthelesses of the Bible. If there was a no, if there was no nevertheless, then Jesus said, I'm done with it. Then we would be done. But there is a nevertheless. He prays at the end of verse 39, not as I will, but as you will. There's no conflict here between Jesus and God, the father here. Rather, what we again see here is how deeply human Jesus is. The divine son came from heaven and he added to himself a human nature. So, so Jesus has two natures, 100% divine and 100% human. And Jesus has two wills. According to those two natures, a human will, according to his human nature and a divine will, according to his divine nature. And that human will was not magically mixed with his divine will so that Jesus had a cheat code through life. No, he lived as every man must live, needing to align his natural preferences to the will of sovereign God. Submitting himself as a human to the father's will. It's what God created man to do. To live under him, obedient to his will. In the first garden, the first man bucked against that plan. Adam said, not your will, but my will be done. Here in this second garden, the better human representative, the perfect man, the man we should have been but failed to be, says even in the most desperate time, not my will, but your will be done. What Adam failed, what Israel failed, what David failed, what we failed to do, Jesus Christ accomplished. It's what theologians call Christ active obedience. His passive obedience is, is Christ laying down his life and dying for our sins on the cross. But his active obedience is shown in passages in prayers like this. Jesus obeying God in every single instance for us as humans were created to do. After addressing his disciples, which we'll come back to shortly, Jesus prayed again a second time in verse 41. And a third time in verse 44 saying, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. You notice the focus here still on doing God's will. And now even more resolved to do so. A loose gospel says that Jesus prayed even more earnestly so that his sweat became like great drops of blood while he was praying. He understood that the cup could not pass lest he drunk it. And he prays again, your will be done. It's what Jesus taught the disciples to pray back in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And now Jesus models what he taught his pupils. Total submission to God. 
One theologian sums it all up like this. Jesus willed to do as a human what he initially and rightly did not want to do as a man. Such that a man lived and died in perfect obedience to God for our salvation and the completion of God's glorious plan for humanity and the rest of creation. As we look at Jesus agonizing in this passage, as we hear Jesus praying in this passage, we get a deep sense of his humanity. He became fully human for us. He resisted the temptation to bypass the cross for us. He submitted to God's will for us. He lived as a man for us. Jesus is deeply human. And friends, through trust in him, empowered by his spirit, we can live the same kind of temptation resisting, submitted to God lives that we were made for and that truly fulfill us and glorify God. We see Jesus' deep humanity here. And yet in this passage, we also see that Jesus is absolutely divine. Point number two, Jesus is absolutely divine. And, and don't trip the Points two and three won't be as long as point one, okay? Point number two, Jesus is absolutely divine. Now, now where do we see Jesus' deity in this passage? Well, again, as we listen in on his prayers. And notice in verses 39 and 42 how Jesus addresses God. He calls him my father. It speaks to an intimacy in the relationship with God that was unknown to any other person up to this point. I mean, the Jews of old thought that God's name, his covenant name, Yahweh, was so holy, was so revered that they would not even pronounce it. They instead referred to God as Adonai, as, as Lord, the kind of capital L, little case O-R-D in your Bibles. But, but here is Jesus Stripping down all the formalities, all the barriers that, that, that might distance one from God. Jesus removes them and he calls the God of the universe, my father. Amen. But how could Jesus have such intimacy? Well, it's because of Jesus's identity. God is his father because Jesus is God's son. The divine, eternal son of God. Not less than God, but of the same essence, of the same substance as God the Father. I mean, in John chapter 5, verse 18, we read that one of the reasons the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus is because, quote, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The way Jesus uniquely addresses God in this prayer shines light on Jesus's unique identity. He is God, the son. Now, why is that so important to see in this passage that Jesus is God, that he is not only deeply human, but absolutely divine? Well, it's because of what Jesus has to accomplish. It's because of the act that he must undertake. He must drink the cup of God's wrath. It cannot pass to anyone else. I mean, look, look again at, at verse 42. Jesus realizes the cup cannot pass unless I drink it. It's unable to be transferred to anyone else. Jesus was the only one qualified to drink this cup, to absorb God's wrath. Why? Because only God has the capacity to endure the full blast of God's fury. Amen. You see, God is an infinite being. And sin infinitely offends him. Which is why the punishment of sin is so infinitely great. Eternity in hell. Why so long, so drastic a punishment? Because of the one who, whom it's against. There is no end to his punishment because no amount of years that I serve by any amount of people could uh, turn up the most horrible wrath away from them. 
right, right? God could, could, could sentence, right, a billion, gazillion times infinity years of punishment in the worst horrible place to all the people who ever lived and it still would not suck up all the wrath that he has. As he is an infinite being, so he has infinite wrath against those who have infinitely offended him. And so no human being who's ever lived would be able to satisfy God's wrath. The cup of his wrath is too deep and the whole mass of humanity multiplied is still too shallow to swallow up the cup, to drink it all down. But on the cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. As he, God in the flesh, did what only he could do, drank down the full cup of God's infinite wrath against sinners like us. He became, as an old word, word used to call it, he became our propitiation. Right? And that's in our Bibles and we don't use it much. We need to keep those theological terms. He became our propitiation. Our appeasements. He drank the cup down to the dregs and didn't leave any wrath left over for us to drink. Not even a drop of it. He removed God's fury against us and turned it into God's favor towards us. As he was judged in our place for the sins of all those who would turn from their sins and trust in him so that we could be saved. Friends, hear the divine son calling out to his divine father in verse 42, your will be done. And that will was done when the father crushed his son for us. Nobody else could do it. But the divine son of God become man to suffer and die for us. What humility. What love. What sacrifice for us. Jesus is absolutely divine. See it here as he wraps his mind around his mission. And as he as it were, he wraps his hand around the cup to take it and drink it for us. He could only do it. Because of who he is, God himself. Lastly, we learn in this passage that Jesus is incredibly compassionate. Jesus is incredibly compassionate. We see Jesus' compassion in this passage overall by being willing to suffer and die for us. There is absolutely no greater kindness in all the world. But but we also see Jesus' compassion here. Expressed in caring about and telling us about our condition. Did you notice in this passage that the three times that Jesus prays, he returns to find the disciples sleeping? I mean, he instructed them back up in verse 38 to, to watch with him, to be vigilant and alert. But not an hour later, he returns in verse 40 to find them all knocked out. Even old Peter who who so boisterously claimed in the previous passage that he'd do whatever. He'd be ready to die to have Jesus back. He'd fight off the fiercest enemy. Here he can't even fight off sleep. But notice Jesus doesn't railroad the disciples in rage. He doesn't blast them. Y'all are some no good friends. Y'all stay letting me down. No, Jesus doesn't tear into them. He tenderly instructs them, reminding them of the feebleness of the flesh and what they need to do to prevent temptation. Jesus says in verse 41 that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Friends, that's a fundamental truth that we all need to embrace. We are not strong. None of us is strong enough on our own to do anything. I mean, John the Baptist once said, a man cannot even do a single thing except from God, right? We are not strong enough on our own to do anything. And most certainly not strong enough to fight sin and temptation. 
I mean, Jesus was the strongest man who ever lived with no sin nature wearing him down or pulling him towards the allurements of temptation. And yet it was still a battle for him to resist it. Our minds, our inner selves, our human spirits, which is what verse 41 is referring to, not the Holy Spirit. They might be set on doing right, intending to do God's will. And Peter had the right intentions, but we are all naturally fragile full of weaknesses prone to wander how often we feel it and as a good and caring physician Jesus tells us about our condition but Jesus also gives us the remedy it's the same remedy that he as a man had to use look at the the beginning of verse 41 watch be alert and pray that you may not enter into temptation. All right, in other words, Jesus is not saying that we, we're supposed to use this kind of uh, language that he give, gives us, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, as a kind of incentive or excuse to sin. Sometimes how we use it, right? You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, I saw her you know, walking by, you know, what Jesus said. And then no, no, know what Jesus really said. Right, he pointed to the condition, but he also gave us the cure. Don't be stupid and dismiss the cure, right? Pray so that you might not enter into temptation. Here is Jesus. Right, let's, let's think about, put yourself here in the story. Here is Jesus facing the greatest temptation of his life. The temptation to, at the final hour, resist the path of the cross. And in great personal agony when he's becoming undone we find him not solely concerned about self-preservation we see him selflessly focused on others he wants the disciples to be spared from their temptations he doesn't want them to succumb he's got this massive temptation that's pounding upon him and yet as weighty as that is Jesus looks out to them a troubled spirit doesn't provoke Jesus to be sharp with others, as it often does us. A troubled spirit doesn't provoke Jesus to be dismissive of others' struggles, to worry only about his own, as we so often do. No, Jesus' troubled spirit still looks through wearied and tearied eyes with care and compassion on other struggles, on our struggles. He is gentle with us and kind. Kind enough to tell us what we need to do to avoid danger. Even as he himself is about to walk into it. Verses 45 and 46 tell us that after praying three times and after the disciples slept three times, Jesus was ready to submit himself into the hands of his betrayer. Ready to be crucified for us in accordance with God's plan and submission to his will. There was no kicking and screaming. Right? God didn't have to drag the son to the cross. There was a settled determination to trust God. How did Jesus get to this point? Through wrestling in prayer. And he wants us to know that we can have the same peace, the same resolve to trust God and submit to his will, even if it's incredibly difficult through prayer. Friends, understand here from this passage, God's will for your life might be horrible. Oftentimes we we, we fight against that. God's will for my life must be marriage, multiple children, lots of wealth, any job I want, the neighborhood I want to live in. God's will for my life must be the good things. God's will for his son's life was the cross. And yet, God's will was not for his son to to, to be disconnected from him. 
and, and, and not for his son to, to endure the cross as if God had totally left him. Right. God's will for his son on the path to the cross was to be deeply and intimately tied to him, to be calling out to him so that there was a kind of inner transformation that happened, even in the midst of all the kind of outer turmoil. Right. God can give you peace even in his plan. All right. We often say that the, the greatest safety is in the midst of God's will. That's true. But God's will can be terrible. You can be shielded from that terror by trusting in him, by submitting to him through prayer. In our weakness, Jesus welcomes us to have the same access to God as he has. That we might call God our father and call on him to help us just as he helped Jesus. Amen. That access to God would be made unavailable to us as Jesus cleared the way for sinners to approach a holy God through his death and resurrection. If we trust in him, we have the same kind of access. My father, Jesus says, becomes our father, Amen. becomes your father. At a time when Jesus could have been most self-consumed. At a time when Jesus could have been most critical of others for their failings, he shows compassion. That's who he is. Incredibly compassionate. Absolutely divine. And deeply human. And all for us. I pray that as we look into the face of Jesus this morning. And as we listen in to his prayers. That we know more of him and his love for us. How he lived the life that we should have lived. Resisting every single temptation. Even this last one. Submitting to God. Dependent upon him. And he died the death that we deserve to die. I pray that in looking at him, our hearts might be transformed, responding to him in worship and in love and in faith and in joy, even through the most severe trials. He's overcome for us. And through him, so will we. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Who did not turn away from the cross. Lord Jesus, we thank you for picking up the cup for us and drinking it down to the dregs. We thank you for the access we have to our Heavenly Father through your blood. We pray that through your sacrifice, we might be strengthened to keep on trusting you all the days of our lives. Lord, lead us not into temptation. And even in the midst of temptation, lead us to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.